This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alan Parker said, sometimes, with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's returning guest is Ed Bowes. Hello. Hi, Stu. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. All the regretful and sorry that Leighton Orient are at home today. Otherwise, we'd be talking in the same room together. Exactly. What a shame. Indeed, indeed. Next next time. Next time, indeed. But before that next time, we're going to talk about your new movie, Trick or Treat. My next 20 years are mapped out. There's not a day goes by I don't think about getting on a plane and heading off to Rio. Happy birthday, Greg. Well, exactly. 45 years and nine minutes ago. Oh, you were born midnight Halloween, and that made you some sort of a witch. Just by being alive. You've already won the lottery. When I'm scraping baby shit from your fingernails, it's you I think about. Jeez, what do you recommend? All of it, sir. I should be hunting mammoths. With your knee, Fletcher. Welcome to my bath, to the spider to the fly. Look him straight in the eye, slow and stern. Is there a problem, officer? The robber, officer. Now you listen. In this line of work, you've got to be ruthless. No conscience, no remorse, nothing. I'm gonna let you choose if your wife or your little girl dies. I just killed someone. I was driving along with a few beers. Fucking blow! Is my brother having an affair with my wife? Always trying to be the big man. Trying to be me. Trying to be you! I did play Potty with Loser! Do you want to give us a synopsis as to what Trick or Treat is all about to give them the, uh, of course. the push to yeah, go and abs- look it out? Yeah, definitely. So it's all about a guy uh, in his sort of mid-40s who's played by Craig Kelly, uh, who you'll know from Queer as Folk and Corrie and Titanic. Uh, he plays a depressed uh guy who is having a tough time adjusting to his new life in Blackpool 
which is where he's from, but he's moved back there in the recent past. Uh, and uh, he's at crisis point with his life. Uh, he's got a new baby. His relationship isn't going very well. And then one evening, his brother, played by his real-life brother, Dean Lennox Kelly, turns up on his front doorstep saying he's killed someone and the body's in the boot of his car, which is outside. And what that does is it kicks off a whole series of sort of um, adventures uh, when it turns out the body in the boot is the son of a major gangster played by Francis Barber. Mm. Cue lots of, um, uh, you know, near misses and scrapes and violent sort of interludes uh, involving her kind of crew. Indeed. In and around, in and in and around the streets of Blackpool at night, and, we, and and we'll avoid spoilers, but just to just to add the sizzle of, and some terrific twists along the way. <laughs> there are some twists along the way. All is not as it seems. Um, I, I think is probably a, uh, safe to say. Indeed, indeed. Now let's let, let's let's drill down then into uh, mm. into the creating and making of this. Now you directed mm. this, and Garen Anderson yeah. wrote it. Um, yes. At what stage in the process as director of this film did you come on board? Yeah. So I mean, it, it was. I mean, it was. It was after the script was pretty much locked. Um, and Geraint. So just to give a bit of background on Geraint, he's quite an mm. interesting guy. Yeah, um, so he worked in the city uh, as a sort of trader, um, and he wrote while he was working as a trader. He wrote an anonymous column bit like sort of sex in the city but to do with the city uh and the sort of banking sector and, and all the sort of wolf of wall street type stuff that went on in his time there you know all these sort of excess and all the sort of you know all, all the fun stuff uh and he wrote this column anonymously called city boy and it appeared in i think metro or the london paper or one of the sort of daily papers in london and it became a sort of must read, not just for people working in the city, but for lots of other people who were curious about that particular industry and everything that went on. Um, and uh, anyway, so the point is, he was he was eventually he was outed as City Boy uh, and turned his column into a book. Uh, the book, which is fantastic, became a bestseller. Um, and uh, he then left the city uh, and attempted to get the film of City Boy made and even when it was having a script written by J.J. Connolly who wrote Layer Cake and, and other sort of you know great Blimey, things Riley. yeah I mean it was it was it was all quite exciting and uh, anyway Wolf of Wall Street came along and kind of uh, you know kind of scuppered its chances a bit um, and as a result that project was put on hold uh, and he sat down, being the sort of industrious kind of uh, clever guy he is, he sat down and wrote a script that he knew he could do for, you know, under half a million uh, that was specifically tailored to his brother-in-law. And his brother-in-law is Craig Kelly, who is the actor I was just talking about, who was in Queer as Folk mm. uh, and so on. Uh, and Craig, you know... Craig, Craig having a sort of, you know, fairly sort of lengthy career and having done lots of stuff, mm. you know, he's got a whole network of sort of, um, you know, sort of famous friends uh, who, and the idea was, was to rope them into the project for bargain rates uh, to sort of help get the film made. Um, so, so that's kind of why I came in was where, the, as I say, the script was pretty much there. 
you know, the casting was mostly in place. So it was my first real time of being, you know, hired as a sort of director for a hire. Gun, a gun for hire. A gun, <laughs> that's, that is what I was. <laughs> so in that sense, then, it, when, when you're not the author of the screenplay, as someone, you know, having done the sort of writer director mm. thing, how how yeah. do you begin to, what's your first thing that you went set about doing in terms of shaping what was to be like your the film you're going to make obviously it's his it's his screenplay but obviously you 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 know the director you know as through through time gets the headline don't he as the author of the piece so what do you what's your first steps when you're beginning to look at a script that you've not written yeah good question i suppose it's it's what is what is kind of the what's the look of the film going to be mm. and inevitably you end up looking at other films for sort of, you know, to, to, I, I would say for inspiration, but what I really mean is to steal from. Of course. Um, and, uh, and there was a film that cropped up. I can't remember. I think it was on Netflix and I can't remember why I watched it, but it was, it was a film that I loved. I don't think many other people loved it. It was called war on everyone. Uh, and it's about these two sort of, uh, it's John McDonough, um, who um, uh, who's, who did uh, Calvary, if you saw that. Yes, I did. Um, uh, fantastic filmmaker. And he made this very quirky, very violent, very funny, sort of Tarantino-esque uh, film called War on Everyone about these two sort of very uh, dysfunctional police played by Alexander Skarsgård and Michael Peña, um, having adventures in this sort of L.A. sort of cityscape, but with very surreal moments along the way. It almost feels like David Lynch meets Tarantino. At least that was my sort of take on it. Nice, nice uh, pitch, if you can uh, get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, have you, have you seen it? Stu? No, I've not. No, no, now you've told it. me about it. You've reminded me that I've not. Watch it. Watch it. It's pretty. I mean, because really they're not. Because what I remember is that the the pair mm. of them are not what you would call heroic characters. Are they not? They're very much anti heroes, aren't they? It, it's got that very. I mean, John McDonough is obviously Martin McDonough's brother. It's got that very kind of in Bruges, irreverent, anything goes kind of flavour to it. But anyway, enough about that film. Okay. I suppose the point is is that the the visuals of that film, from the costume to the production design, was sort of heightened and quite wacky, and certainly you know, very impactful and it jumped off the screen. And I just thought, I think that's, you know, looking at Blackpool, which I'd never been to before, mm. but looking at all the images of it, you know, it is, it's, it's bright, it's neon, it's quite garish. Uh, you know, it's garish the Garish is a word of, for Blackpool, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I came to love Blackpool sort of, uh, um, you know, through filming there. But I mean, it does have that vagacy, you know, sort of neon feel to it. And I just sort of felt, you know, we need that needs to be reflected in the characters, how the characters dress, how they behave, what the production design looks like. It all needs to be a bit, you know, the volume of all these things needs to be turned up. So when I when I sort of started meeting DPs for the you know, out, of interest, for, out of interest, then just let me stop you there. Sorry, yeah. So in terms of being a good hire, then do you and you say about meeting D, potential DPs? So are you mm. as that director? Are you in control of? the heads of department and who gets, so I just have a role to play in recruiting them with the producer. Um, yeah. I mean, in the, in this instance I was, um, and there were a couple of people who came in who were just came in as highly recommended and I met them and I didn't meet anyone else. And that was great. So the production designers who are called Sophia Stuco and Jin Goodwin, they came in highly recommended. 
you know, and as I say, we chatted, we were on exactly the right lines, same lines, same page. Um, so that all sort of fell into place quite naturally. Finding a DP was a bit was a bit tougher. And yes, it was it was left down to me. Mm. I think I, I must have met, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 people. Blimey. Yeah, I know. And so what, what, in that I'm, sense, then, what, it sounds like mm. that was a challenge then. So why, why was it so challenging to be able to find the right one? Was that about you marrying up with them or somebody not not being able to find people to share a vision with? Is it what, what's it the important more, quality? It was more a case of someone who kind of got, you know, not to sound wanky about it, but someone who sort of got, got you know, was, was sort of got my vision of what the film should be. Uh, and how they responded to the kind of examples and visuals that I showed them. Mm -hmm. And I suppose the other thing was, was that it's quite a male-dominated, was quite a male-dominated project, this. And I'd worked with a female DP, fantastic DP, called Kate Reed on my first film. Mm -hmm. And I met Maeve, she's called Maeve O'Connell, who I'm sure would go on to do great things. I mean, she was absolutely brilliant. You know, and I met her, and she's got, you know, not only is she fantastically talented, but we were on the same page in terms of, you know, really how the film should look. Uh, and she was excited about it, you know. And I just sort of looked at her and I just thought, you know, I think I just feel like she's the perfect person for this for, you know, a number of reasons. Um, so we just sort of clicked um, and and that was it, really. And then we spent, you know, days and days just sort of going, looking at films, looking at photos, looking at images to really nail down what the style of the film is going to be. Yeah, because so, obviously, um, as being, being someone from the Northwest who's very familiar with Blackpool, the seaside resort, I'm not familiar with Blackpool, the film set mm. location. <laughs> so so um, in that sense, I could imagine that there are some challenges, but there also there must be some strength to to a place like Blackpool with it with obviously some of its uniqueness as much as it's as much as some of its you know the further you get away from the seafront, the more it's just it's a bit maybe a bit drab and poverty stricken and stuff like a lot of northwest mm. places. But but mm. you know there is there is something there is something there that isn't in every town in Britain. So therefore, there's some fun to be had, I guess, with, with I think, what you do yeah. with Blackpool. Well, exactly. I mean, so 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 Craig Craig Kelly, our lead actor, and mm. Dean, his brother, they are both from Blackpool, and originally the script was set in London. Okay. Uh, the reason it was the reason it was set in London is because Geraint, the writer, owns a house here, and the idea was was to shoot, which is in fact what we we did anyway. But the idea was to shoot all the house interiors in London in Shepherd's Bush, where he lives, to save money. And it was Craig's idea to shift the focus of the story to Blackpool. And his point, which was a very good one, was, you know, we've seen so many London set films, TV series. It's it's boring. Let's find somewhere that has rarely been seen on film or TV before. I mean, of course, it has as examples, but not nearly as many as you would get down here. No, no. You know, I mean, look, we at Britflix and John will be listening in now will be screaming <laughs> at me, but I think we have seen a lot of uh, Cockneys screaming at each other in the streets of London over gang yes. rights and territories. So yes. the idea of shifting focus to another part of Britain is not a bad idea when you're trying to make a, a sort of a, a crime thriller of some description. Yeah, and also, you know, there's so much there. I mean, so much of the production design is done for you. you okay. know, you've got the tower. You've got the amazing illuminations. That, as I said, I'd never seen them before. I wasn't really aware of them. But, I mean, you turn up, 
uh, at night or sort of early evening. The illuminations are on. I mean, it is, it's amazing. I mean, it is an absolute visual feast. And, you know, all you have to do is stand at the side of the road and watch the reflections bouncing off buses and cars and so on driving past to realize that, you know, all you have to do is pretty much point the camera in that direction. You're going to get something that is going to look unusual and unique. So it's all and about suppose, taking advantage of it rather than trying to meld it to something that it wasn't. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I suppose, you know, it, you know, I think you've got, you, when you make a film like this, there's so many, I mean, on the surface, this is a sort of British gangster film, but it's, it's not really like that. Mm. You know, it explores all sorts of things. But, you know, just from a visual perspective, you sit down at the beginning of these things and you go, right, how can we make this feel and look different from everything else? And filming someone like Blackpool, you know, helps massively because it's underrepresented on film. Visually, it is amazing, albeit slightly seedy, but mm -hmm. I mean that in a positive way. Of course. And I suppose there was a there was a there was a there was another sort of practical reason, which was, you know, when you're filming someone like London that is absolutely saturated with film crews and people wanting to shoot and so on you know, there's a sort of, there's a kind of reticence, reluctance sometimes to allow, you know, to allow film crews to take any sort of liberties. And with someone like Blackpool, you know, the council, all the sort of, you know, the people in, the, the people with their sort of fingers on the buttons, literally, when it came to the illuminations, were so eager to showcase their town, uh, their city, as being, you know, as being as worthy as anywhere else of appearing on screen and looking fantastic. You know, they were so helpful and that was such a massive asset for, for, a, for a film crew with limited means. Now, can, can, um, you, can you think so, of something from, from, what, from where you started with that vision when you're talking to mm, your DP? Um, yeah. What particular aspect in, in the film did, did, did you, do you, do you, do springs to mind in terms of what you got in, in camera that you managed to capture in Blackpool that, that stands out for you? So I think it's well. I mean, in Blackpool, certainly it was the it was the illuminations, mm. um, and you know we looked at films like uh, you know some of my favourites like Natural Born Killers and uh, Paris, Texas, uh, films that use artificial light because that was one of my big things. Is I I don't want to see any natural light in this film. And in fact, there's only two instances where you do see natural light, um, and I just felt that the the way that the illuminations the way that the illuminations appeared on camera and reflected everything, the actors, the cars, you know, that was exactly the kind of thing that I was after. And it worked so much better than I could possibly have imagined. Now, um, your, your leading man is obviously also, well, not obviously at all, but I see he's also, he's down, he's down as a producer as well of the film. Mm. <clears throat> so you've got your, your, your producer is also your, so based on thinking there is your your producer is also your leading man. So how how does the mm. conversation go where, where you're making a film with a producer and then and then they go right you're in charge now you direct us or is it not quite as fluid as that? I I tell you what it was it was I mean yeah good 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 question I mean it was it was more a case of when Craig when he was when he was being Craig the actor mm. um, he was solely focused on that. And I think that there were other people who were more focused on the producing side during the actual shoot than he was, mainly because he had the weight of responsibility, which was he's the main part in the film. Um, so it didn't really particularly sort of, it didn't cause any conflict, certainly. Mm. Um, 
and actually in many ways was an asset because, you know, uh, for an actor to be a producer, they're naturally more sympathetic to things taking a long time to set up, you know, and, and that sort of thing that in other circumstances might potentially cause a bit of friction. Mm. But I suppose it meant that he was just a bit more tolerant of, you know, <coughs> indulgences, if you like, on the part of the crew. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, it worked well. Now, there's, 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 it, it, because it, because it happens a lot. This film happens, and if I remember rightly, the entire film is at night, isn't it? There's no more or less, yeah, more or less. There's very little daylight at all, isn't there, in this yeah. movie? So, mm. um, and obviously, the nighttime hides a multitude of sins, but obviously, yes. behind that, behind that darkness is where the likes of uh, Francis Barber and her crew exist <laughs> to give Craig and his brother uh, nightmares in terms of the trick or treat yes. story. Mm. And 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 that and that's what I think that's what I think is interesting about about this type of sort of heightened heightened thriller is that it's almost like the rest of the world doesn't even know this is going on, and yet at the same time, it's grounded in the real world as heightened mm. as it is, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was you know I remember someone read the script and said to me, "This is great, but be careful about falling into cliche." in terms of the characters and in terms of, and I suppose that was, that was my big kind of, you know, concern, not concern, but that was something that I wanted to sort of say on top of was keeping the characters real, you know, not turning them into sort of like stereotypes, which would have been quite easy. Mm -hmm. um, but also, you know, the whole film really is about the emotional state of a character going through a midlife crisis and that was the thing that I really liked about the film when I got the script, is it wasn't just another guns and geezers sort of film, although obviously there's a place for that and they're great fun. But the thing about this film was it's a midlife crisis film wrapped up in sort of gangster film packaging. Mm. And I just felt that was interesting. And therefore, you know, the more real that the emotions of the characters were, particularly the main character, the more impactful the whole thing overall would be. And I mean, the key to that really was having such a great cast. And I mean, the cast of the film, I mean, I don't know what you think, Stu, but from my point of view, punches way above its weight mm. when you compare it to other similar budgeted films. No, because I, I, um, I, I often try and go in as cold as I can. So I knew, I knew Craig was in it, obviously, um, mm. but I didn't know anything else when I, when I switched it on. And then, and then when you give us the reveal on... Um, on um, Miss Miss Ferguson and it's Francis Barber sort of calling the shots and scaring everyone shitless. I was kind of like, oh, props to you there, because uh, it was it was really cool. Sort of it really sort of it gave it it gave it that little oomph that you're like you kind of and also um, just hold on a second before can you are you getting feedback at your end here at the moment or is it just me? Okay, that's just me. Then hold on a sec because it's on the recording. Bear with me. I'm sure it's just wires deciding. No, it's definitely. Uh, I'll stop doing it. Bear with me a sec. Ah, seems to have magically stopped. I've got no understanding why. All I've done is move my iPhone from right to left. Um, right then, I'll uh, I'll try, try and, I'll try and start that bit again. Okay, um, ba, ba, sure. ba, ba, ba. so what we had when I started watching it, going in cold, was I knew I knew Craig was in it 
and I knew obviously the set in a Blackpool, but I didn't know anything else about it. So in your mm. sort of magnificent reveal where we end when we enter into gangland for the first time mm. proper, as it were, in terms mm. of where the story wants to take us at that point. Yeah. You reveal with a big oomph uh, Miss Ferguson, who is played by the fantastic Francis Barber. And yes. uh, so from you as a director, somebody with such a such a sort of career and a reputation as a fantastic actor. What do you do as a director with someone like Francis? Uh, well, you, you have a lot of conversations before you start filming about what you want. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to the actual shoot, you say as little as possible. Oh yeah. Because, you know, if you've done your job, I mean, a lot of your, what I'm saying is, is that the way I approached it was to front load as much as possible. So when it came to the actual shoot, and bear in mind the shoot was extremely, you know, short. I mean, it was 20, I think 22 or 23 days. Uh, and that, that was 50% London, 50% Blackpool. Yeah. So that include that included a move as well. Um, we'll get on to that as we've as I've promised you. <laughs> yeah, of course. So you're looking to get through things as quickly as possible. And also, you know, you want to be respectful of their process of you know francis and all the all the others you know they're incredibly experienced actors um and you know they will bring a huge amount to the party if you like whilst shooting that you can sort of bounce off so you know i think it's it's about just being as clear and direct as possible yeah and like i say having having had those conversations like you know in relaxed circumstances you know three weeks before um, so that everyone knows, everyone's on the same page, really. So in, in terms of that, and so when you, because obviously the, the character is quite, quite the, um, quite the bombastic character, you know. And um, mm. so are you? Are you when you're talking to Francis at that in those in those three weeks before your shoot days? Yes. Is it about the pair of you going? Well, how far do you want me to put my jazz hands up, and how far do you want me to keep my jazz hands down? <laughs> So to speak, uh, does that make sense? I mean, yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah, I'm I, not, you're not acting, and she is, and you're directing, and you've got a vision, and between you, you've somehow got to find somewhere in the middle that is where you both agree that's what you're trying to achieve. Of course, I mean, I think with with her, she had a very clear idea of what the, of who she wanted the character to be, mm -hmm. and I was in agree I was in agreement with that, which was which was you know which was which was good. Mm. Um, I don't think there were any instances where. I asked her to dial it back or anything particularly like that. Mm. Um, I think mainly because we'd, we'd discussed who the character was, where she came from, what her attitudes were, how she felt at various points through the film. So I think that we had a fairly, we had a, we had a good sort of mutual understanding of who the character was uh, from the, from the outset. Um, and I don't really remember, I mean, you know, when you're dealing with actors, you know, and there's a lot of actors in, in this film, you know, who incredibly experienced, you know, when you're dealing with people who are that experienced, you know, it really is. I, I think the less you say, the better, mm. you know, and, and when you do give notes, just being very, very precise about what you want. One, one, so I was going to say one of my, one of my, one of my favorite things about what, what you pull off with this then is that is the idea that yes, there is the heightened, but also mm. it still ends up being played straight. Like this is normal. We're living in this. We're not doing this to make you laugh. <laughs> we yeah. this is how this is how we behave with each other. 
Do you know, what? you're right. That, that, it's coming back to me now because it was a while ago we had these conversations. One of the things I did say to Francis and the others was no winking at the audience. You know, no sort of, uh, no sort of <laughs> wry smiles as in, yes, we know this is all very sort of, you know, over the top. Mm. Uh, I did say to them, and they were in complete agreement. There was no arguments there. Mm. You know, do it, do it straight. Let the costumes, let the production design, let the characters, you know, speak for themselves sort of thing. Um, you know, and I think that worked quite well. No, totally, totally. Um, now, you've mentioned it already um, and about the shoot sort of covering London and um, and Blackpool in terms of moving moving everybody around. And mm. it was it was for somebody like me where I live in Leighton and walk around the Olympic Park a lot, it was sure. quite the moment in your movie to realise a chase scene around Blackpool was suddenly, as far as in real terms, was, was just down the road from where I live in the Olympic Park on, <laughs> on, a, on a stretch of road which is frequented by many a film crew, I should add. Yes, um, yes. So, um, which is, you know, and this is perfectly normal. Lots of, you know, I, I, I think it was, I think I remember seeing a making, in fact, not a making, I was all, I interviewed Larry Smith, the DOP on uh, Eyes Wide Shut. And mm. the scene when Tom Cruise is running through the, the orgy, as it were, and then he's running yes. through the next floor. I think there's something like yeah. 300 miles between the two the two different spaces he runs in. So he runs into one room, then you cut to him running another room, and it's about 300 miles <laughs> in in real terms. But uh, but obviously the film makes it look like he's just gone upstairs and running in another room. Like um, so, in that sense, you're 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 playing a chase scene with with some action that straddles the northwest of England and East London, but mm. we the audience don't think we've ever left the northwest of England. So. What are that's, the challenges for you as a film production and in terms of moving everyone, but also simple things like continuity, I suppose? I mean, there was one big nightmare, which was going to going out to going out to Hackney Wick uh, mm. and shooting the Olympic Park. You know, there are a lot of very recognisable landmarks around there, such as the velodrome and the amazing um, what's the uh, sort of red kind of um, a sculpture slide type yeah thing. yeah yeah Anish Kapoor's called. um Anish Kapoor yeah exactly thanks and you've I mean, got and you've you know, got the swimming pool which is architecturally yes, unbelievable West Ham absolutely. Stadium <laughs> yeah exactly you can't I move for them way, you are you're, you are limited <laughs> you are very limited in terms of where you can point the camera yeah but in some ways that's that's quite good you know it's that sort of dogma thing of you know you can't use this you can't use that you know restrictions actually are quite you know they do help stimulate your creative brain they do like um, like boredom constraints fuel the imagination don't they precisely this is it so actually if you can only shoot in two directions in some ways that's quite freeing because you sort of go well that's that's it that's how we're going to have to shoot it um so so that was all good the the thing that was a challenge actually that i hadn't realized is that so we had a location manager who came on to the project quite late yeah. which wasn't ideal and what that meant was i hadn't really got to spend any time in any of the locations certainly around where you are around to the hackney wick okay um i'd never been there before i'd never went to the olympics or anything like that so it was complete sort of alien sort of territory to me and um you know, you get told things like, yeah, we've got this stretch of uh, road, you know, the one I'm talking about, mm -hmm. sort of, you know, unused road, disused road, but looks like a road, is a road, doesn't go anywhere, though, um, for a chase scene. And you think, brilliant. And you get in the car, or rather you sort of set the car up and everything. 
And then the stunt driver says to you, right, yeah, a bit of a problem. There's speed bumps every, you know, 20 meters. And of course, if there's speed bumps every 20 meters, quite hard to get any sort of speed up, you know, before you're sort of having to slow down again. So things like that were a challenge. But, you know, in the end, you, you just get on with it. You know, I think that's the thing about low budget filmmaking. You know, is that you don't have all the options, you don't have all the things that you're disposed well, to. Just, can, just to... thinking of that point, then. So, talk us through what what's the fudge you've got to do to work around speed bumps every twenty yards or so. Yeah, I think what we did was, I think we used lots of very short shots. So we got the stunt driver to absolutely floor it between the speed bumps, uh, and we managed to get just enough <laughs> that we could sort of stitch it together. But it wasn't ideal. Let's put it that way. And you, and you, but in terms of what I see on the film, you're also cutting some of this with things that are from Blackpool, aren't you, as well? That's right. That's right. And it's not a question of trying to sort of trick people. Of course not. You know, no. it, it's more a case of it's more a case of you know just practicality, really. You know, we had a certain amount of time in Blackpool, and I mean, my priority in Blackpool was to shoot recognisable Blackpool landmarks, of course, or rather, you know, get the tower in the background as much as possible, shoot oh. all the drone stuff, you know, to really sort of like showcase the city. Um, you know, for the great place that it is. But then you've got, you know, you, it, you, you have things like, you know, suddenly the crew, you know, you have to move the crew back to London for logistical reasons because, you know, everyone, all the crew live in London. If you go out to Blackpool, there's an accommodation cost, there's, you know, per DMs and so on. So it makes financial sense to shoot, you know, really as little as possible in Blackpool, although we shot a hell of a lot, and then shift, shift back to London where everyone is basically based mm. and just fill in the gaps there. Got you. But the trick is, is to find to find shops and locations and things that will work, that will make you feel like you're still in Blackpool, that are true to the whole visual sort of nature of Blackpool. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, look, um, let's um, let's put out a reminder then. So the film's had a little bit of a cinema run by the time we're talking mm. now on the, what are we, the 6th of November. And it's the plan is early 2020 sometime there's going to be a digital VOD yes. release. Yes. Um, so before I say thank you, is there any, is there anything new on the horizon for you, Ed, that you can talk about? Um, yeah, I'm well. I've 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 got a script in front of me, not literally right now, but I've been I've been sent a script, uh, which is um, how do I put this without giving too much away? It's it's a genre. It's a sort of it's a chase film, really. It's a chase film in the style of the Terminator, but it's not sci-fi. It's got that sort of flavor to it, mm-hmm. um, which is, which is, which is exciting. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens with that. And, uh, I also have a company with, uh, a couple of guys, um, and we are developing various projects for TV. We've also just optioned a book, which is a sort of talent and Mr. Ripley type story. Excellent. Um, yeah, which you know is one of my favourite films, so that's quite exciting. Um, so yeah, lots, lots on the on the horizon. But I suppose to you that the the final thing I'd say is that um, you know, for anyone listening to this, you know, who's thinking about launching their sort of first film or wanting to get a film made, you know, there's no way that we could have afforded the cast in this film without you know having a sort of linchpin person who was Craig who managed to get all his mates to sort of come in and, and do a bit of filming. Mm. And, you know, I think that what I would say to other filmmakers, you know, who are sort of, you know, sort of thinking about how to sort of, you know, shore up their cast and make, make their, 
projects as sort of commercial as possible is that, you know, if you can, it's not a question of necessarily finding someone who's just got loads of famous friends, but, and even if they don't, you know, they, a lot of these actors, they all know each other and a lot of actors will come down for half a day. I mean, Jason Fleming is in the film. Uh, he was, he was with us for four hours you know, and he came down at sort of two o'clock in the morning and just did it, did it as a favor. Mm. Um, so people will do it. It's just a question of, you know, asking really um, and just not asking too much of them. Um, you know, most people, most actors will just about be prepared to give away half a day or a day of their time, you know, for a project that they think is, has some merit. You no, know, no one, one, of me, one of my favorite stories of that was, uh, a very bold director who walked into Hugh McGregor's agent and he had a film fully funded in the sense of he could pay equity minimum. Yeah. And he's, and because he had the money on the table, he didn't actually say, I want Hugh McGregor to raise the money. Um, yes. He gets him and the agreement was, well, I'm doing a theatre run, so I have to be finished every day by four. So he's like, all right. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, so brilliant. He's like, he's like, I'll have you in my film if it means you've got to finish at four. And I thought that was... Exactly. Exactly. And that, that film was Scenes of a Sexual Nature, which mm. is, uh, I see, is that the one? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, which was great, which is great. I mean, you know, what a sort of enterprising sort of approach to, you know, to, to getting a sort of low budget film made. You know, and I think that, I think that what, what this film has taught me is that cast is so important, which sounds obvious. Mm. You know, I should, you know, it's not like I didn't realize that before, but just in terms of getting, cutting through the noise, and there is so much bloody noise, you know, if you think about the amount of content out there, having a decent cast you know, really does get get people's attention, you know. And last week, for instance, Trick or Treat was on both Good Morning Britain and BBC Breakfast, on which it had, uh, you know, an eight-minute and a four-minute slot, um, the eight-minute slot with Francis Barber on BBC Breakfast, and also Chris Marshall, who's in the film, um, as you all know from having watched it, uh, mm -hmm. he, was on, he was on Good Morning Britain uh, talking about the film. You know, so it just... It, it gives it gives people a way in to sort of get excited about your film. Um, Actually, there's one. Sorry, there's one thing I did. I'd, I'd, I'd forgotten my notes to ask you. Um, what was it like directing brothers? Is because obviously they've got a they've got an understanding between themselves, <laughs> having been brothers, and you're mm. you're the director. You know, which you know, in you know, very few things in life, apart from the army and making films, are as hierarchical. And obviously, direct, <laughs> and people look at the director for answers, don't they? But obviously, when you've got two, when you've got two siblings, to to, and obviously they're in a, a number of scenes together. Yeah. You know, are you are you directing them or are you watching brothers sometimes? Yeah, I mean, well, put it this way: there was, uh, there's a scene where they sort of face off against each other. They have a real sort of screaming match, mm. uh, and that was shot. I think that was shot relatively early on. And that sort of set the tone for their relationship on screen, but also their relationship with, with me as well, which was pretty much set up the lights, get the camera in the right position and just roll camera and just let them let them have at it, basically, which is what they did. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, to answer your question, it was more a case of nudging, like minimal nudging, uh, at sort of key moments, but more or less letting them get on with it, you know, because apart from anything, I didn't know them. I didn't, you know, I've never met them before this project. Yeah. And um, so I was, you know, an outsider, 
as far as they were concerned. Um, you know, and it was, I suppose it was about being respectful to them to explore the things that they wanted to explore on screen. But obviously, if there was anything I didn't like or thought wouldn't fit with the overall sort of feel of the film, then I would say so, you know, and I did. Um, but and and I guess, I guess, given you've, you, you've had these conversations in pre-production time, You've kind mm. of you've got over a few humps that once you get to yep. the kind of would do in the shoot, you can kind yep. of draw back on you can draw back on these things that you've That's already talked right. about. That's right. That's right. I mean, you know, preparation is everything. Certainly, when it comes to making a film, and uh, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is go into a project underprepared. I mean, equally, being overprepared is um, is is can can cannot be a good thing. Um, but, you know, getting getting all these discussions out of the way at the start is so useful because it means then they know where they are with the character. They know what they're doing. You're all on the same page. You know, it just makes life so much easier when the sort of, you know, the, the, the nature of low budget filmmaking and filming outside as well, filming at night. Uh, in November in Blackpool, all the challenges that that throws up, mm. you know, you really need to have a sort of a really solid core, um, you know, with your actors uh, and with your crew. And provided you do, because you've done all the sort of legwork, you know, right at the start, you can get through it. Brilliant. Well, look, it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving us your time on the podcast and thank you very much, sorry, and congratulations on Trick or Treat. <laughs> thank you, Stu. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.